The Charles Adler Show starts now. So he's a newspaper columnist and he does great substacks with Jen Gerson. It's called The Line. And he chats with yours truly, which I'm most grateful for. Matt Gurney in Toronto, welcome back. Nice to be back and on a less hectic day than the day before. Not uh, terribly far uh, from where you sit right now. And that would be in uh, Buffalo, New York. As a matter of fact, just, just across the line. There was what some people wanted to believe and some people did believe was an act of terrorism. Give me your, give me your take on, on, on the mental processes of Matt Gurney as this was an evolving situation in which, yes, there was an explosion, and yes, two people died, but no, it wasn't terrorism. I was for sure worried it was terrorism. Um, photos from the scene came out pretty quickly uh, from American news sources. Uh, and just actually a shout out right at the beginning. The local guys in Buffalo did a killer job yesterday. And in the unlikely chance any of them hear this, a uh, full shout out to the TV and newspaper teams in Buffalo who did fantastic work. Um, when the story broke, there was uh, a big plume of black smoke coming right out of where the customs terminals were, videos of uh, a fairly significant fire and of an obliterated car. And the reports were that uh, there had been an explosion that had destroyed the car. It takes a lot of energy to obliterate a car. And I looked at that, I thought to myself, oh my God, somebody blew themselves up in in, in the terminals. Um, the story began to fall apart after a couple of hours. It took kind of a while, but first we were hearing, well, there might've been a, a car crash that was involved, or there was a high-speed vehicle. But what really began to tip it over for me, and this was after Fox News had unfortunately gone full, we found explosives at the scene. There was a guy being interviewed on CNN who basically just said, according to the local traffic cops, there was some kind of traffic incident on a road adjacent to the property and a car went flying over a fence and they exploded on impact. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this because I'm mindful of the fact that two people died, but like, thank God. Um, a, a terrible car accident is a family tragedy. Um, but if this had been something else, that's a national crisis for this country. Hitting um, a border crossing right at the start of Thanksgiving would have been a disaster for this country's interest. And you'll remember from the convoy, right? The Americans, uh, reports at the time made very clear, we're getting increasingly impatient with our ability to secure our, our own side of the border. This was a nightmare we didn't need and thank God didn't get. So I don't want to pretend to be an explosives expert, and I know you don't want to either, Matt. But if you've got a you know big Bentley with a with a full tank of gas, and uh, I don't have any idea of what speed it was doing before it crashed, but it was uh, well beyond the speed limit. Don't we get an explosion? It seems like we got an ignition. And here I am, not trying to again be a explosives expert, but what I think happened is that people heard a really loud smash and then there was a lot of smoke and fire and people who don't know the distinction between an explosion and an ignition called it an explosion um and i think understandably so uh, it's worth noting that i mean i think everybody took this issue seriously including obviously the layer upon layer of alphabet soup u.s national security agencies that were responding in buffalo uh, it's a testament. It's a testament to their capabilities that within a couple of hours they were able to go that there was no explosive residue found at the scene. And there's another side conversation to all of this. I don't know if we want to get into it, but 
isn't this just and you, you've worked on both sides of the border american officials answer questions a lot better than yeah Canadian yeah Amer- american officials uh, tend to most of the time uh, tell you most of what they know and canadian officials tend to tell you almost none of what they know and sometimes give you the impression that they know nothing did you read uh, it's, it's it was a coincidence of timing but did you read paul wells his latest just came out when the same day of of the incident in niagara paul wrote a column and it's it's funny but it's a very dark kind of comedy it is simply a narration of his attempt to get a statement from the government and it's just a sequence of the emails he sent when he sent them how they replied and the, the upshot of it is after he calls it the shaggy dog joke, right? Where the joke just goes on and on and on forever. And then the punchline is underwhelming. And Paul says it was the exact shaggy dog joke, right? Because he goes back and forth with the government of Canada spokespeople for days. And they keep saying, him, hey, Paul, we're fact checking one more thing. We want to get you the right answer. Give us one more day. And then after days and days and days of this, they get back with him with a complete boilerplate comms release that doesn't even attempt to address any of his actual questions. It's like a pure, our government remains committed to the well-being of Canadians. And then meanwhile, south of the border, you've got like random American security guys with megaphones going, no explosives. Right. So does any of this have to do with the difference between U.S. and Canadian culture? Or is this just a a Canadian government idiosyncrasy that uh, Paul Wells does a, a good job of mocking? I think these things become mutually reinforcing, right? Because I think Canadian culture is a little more tolerant of irritations. And I think Americans are, you and I both know Americans. We love Americans. Americans will grab you by the shirt collar and yell at you until you answer a question. And that's something I admire about them. So I think Canadians are a little more deferential to authority. And then the authorities try to get away with a little bit more of uh not answering questions and Canadians grumble a bit, but they don't do anything about it. So the next round of authorities answers a little bit less. Plus there is, I mean, there's the concurrent development that you and I have spoken about, which is the complete collapse of the mainstream media as an effective arbitrating force in Canada. So like if fundamentally Paul Wells, one of the better known journalists in the country, I think a man who has an enormous profile and a a fantastic reputation if he cannot get the government to answer really simple questions that do not touch on anything proprietary or confidential or no national security nexus, he wanted to know if an academic has begun a project to review documents related to the federal response to COVID. Because he had been told, it's all in his article, I'm not blowing any secrets here. He'd been told that a particular guy had been hired to begin the work. And he emails the government, he's like, hey, can you confirm that this guy is working on it? And that if so, what are his frames of reference? And the government, like weeks later, responds with, we are committed to preserving the well-being of Canadians. <laughs> and like it, it, take, it takes a long time to get there in terms of like a deferential population and a government that is figuring out really quickly the advantage of never actually answering questions. But here we are. So, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to call for a full embrace of the American culture here, but... Every time I read one of these statements, I do start wondering if we need to storm a harbor and throw some tea into the ocean. We're, we're committed to trying to ensure that Canadians need the oxygen that their lungs require. We're committed to it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a priority for this government. Yeah. Matt, Matt uh, where are Pierre Polyev's uh, priorities uh, in the House when, when he saw the report on Fox and he later said that he got it off CTV? Problem is that 
he was spouting about terrorism before the CTV report came out. So let's just make the safe assumption that he didn't. Was he, uh, see, that, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. But I was planning later today to look at the timeline. Okay. Here. Had CTV had that story? I'm, I'm told that Fo- well, I'm to- well, Fox broke it. I mean, their yep. reporter claimed to have special police sources and yep. et cetera. All right, fine. Uh, CTV it, it repeated it sometime later. I, I'm told that uh, Polyev got his uh, nose in it very soon after Fox broke the story before CTV did. And and then later when he got into trouble for almost looking like he was lusting for, for a terror attack so that he could blame Trudeau for that, like he blames Trudeau for everything else. Uh, so once uh, Polyev had some egg on the Canadian face, uh, his crew said, well, they, they didn't actually take it from Fox. They took it from CTV. And I guess that would make it somewhat better you can you can do your research you can do your homework and 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 give us a a more precise answer than what i've just given you but whether it was ctv or or fox or whatever uh just let's just focus on tone canadians do care about tone did did piali have not give you the impression that he that that this was a gotcha for him even though it's terrorism possible terrorism which is obviously a a threat to a lot of people if it's true if 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 did you not get the impression that Pierre Polyev uh, was someone who who who, who was like a, a kid on a, a treasure hunt at Easter, uh, thinking he just found something. I didn't see the comments until this morning. Um, I was doing other stuff last night, and then I had many people angrily tweeting at me to know why I had not decried Polyev like I'm his press spokesperson or something. So I didn't actually see it until this morning. So I had the benefit of seeing it with hindsight, having known already what all the answers were. Um, what I think he did. Uh, and, and he should not have done this. I think he does what he does with literally everything, which is that whatever the news story of the day is, he will stand up in the house and demand to know why the prime minister let it happen and what he's going to do to fix it. And there have been moments in, in even recent months where I, th- and, and the India, uh, allegations were an example where I don't know if that was Mr. Polyev's own judgment or his staff around him, but where he's been come out and he's been more measured in his initial comments and he was not about the bridge and there was absolutely a way to ask the question in a responsible even aggressive way where he could have said mr prime minister you know there's been reports of a frightening incident in niagara falls uh canadians are seeking answers what can you tell us and you could gussy that up with the usual polyevian i don't know if we have a term for that yet rhetorical flourishes um, but like, there are ways to get the talking point that still keep you safe. And I, and I actually, and I, you would hire our public commentators, right? Like we've, we've gone around the sun a few times and you learn over the years how to say things without getting yourself killed. And this is a skill Mr. Polyev either has chosen not to cultivate or which remains a work in progress for him. Um, I have said before, and I, st- I still think this, I think as, uh, as a politician, I'm just talking about both men as politicians. I think Mr. Polyev is a real threat to Mr. Trudeau. I think Mr. Polyev's strengths stack up well against Mr. Trudeau's weaknesses, but too much of anything can be bad. And I think Mr. Polyev needs to have either someone in his inner circle or even a smidgen of this in his own noggin, which is to go when is the moment to be an attack dog, which for him would be like 98% of the time versus when do I just pull that back 10%?
And when do I ask a question that I can still get a sound bite out of, but keeps me on the safe side? He is he has no interest in doing this, as far as I can tell. And look, the polls, the polls seem to be bearing him out, at least at this particular moment. But no, I, I think I have concerns the way I see this guy have one setting, because the question it raises for me, if he's elected, and again, the polls right now suggest he is likely to be. Does he have some other other complete skill set? I don't know. He might. He might have all the emotional intellectual skills he needs to be an excellent prime minister. He might not. And I'd like to start seeing a little more diversity, I guess, in his offerings on that front. It would be reassuring. I tend, when it comes to a decision maker, especially uh, the most important decision maker in the land, I care to make... My si- wife? Yeah, right. I, 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 tend, I tend to make serious judgments about how a person behaves in, in a crisis because the government the government works the way the government works regardless of who is in the prime minister's office. 99% of government is the professional civil service just doing, doing their jobs, okay? Uh, so crises are the game changers. I don't have the impression that Polyev has the instincts to do the right things, the responsible things, the timely things, in a crisis. Your turn. I've seen no reason to think that he does either. Um, that is not... What I want to know is whether or not he has fully optimized his political character, for lack of a better term, his political presentation, to be effectively, and I use this term in a political sense, not literally, but a Trudeau killer. You know, he, like I said, I think his political strengths at, on the attack match up well against Mr. Trudeau's weaknesses as a politician. The question I have, is that just his natural setting anyway, and he's winning the timing lottery and that he's well matched against someone who will be vulnerable to that? Or is there going to be some huge pivot in the future? I see no evidence that there will be a huge pivot. But I, the problem is, Charles, and you, you know this, because like I said before, you and I have uh, done one or two of these before. When the voters are tired of your face, they don't necessarily care about the guy they're picking to replace you. Yeah, my, my, my question isn't about uh, the polls, you know, polls, schmoles. Uh, um, I, I've seen uh, Trudeau look uh, like a guy with a double-digit deficit that weeks uh, from the actual writ dropping. Uh, even during uh, the writ, I've seen him well behind. So I, I'm, I'm just not going to draw conclusions uh, uh, two years out a bit based on polling. Um, I'm not suggesting that uh, Polyev isn't beating him on the, uh, the attack dog stuff. Uh, Trudeau, frankly was never a strong attack dog. Neither was Lester Pearson, neither was Paul Martin. I mean, there have been a number of uh, prime ministers who were relatively successful and were not great at attack attack dogging. And there have been a number of opposition leaders who were excellent at attacking, but they weren't, they weren't great at governing. So, I mean, I, I, I know that those of us who do professional media, you know, we enjoy the, uh, the attack and the, the defense of the attack. And it's, it's great. Let's just call it political theater. But it has squat to do with government. I don't agree. I disagree with you. Go ahead. And I'm going to make your case. I'm going to disagree with you for this very simple reason. A leader who remains consistently catastrophically down in the polls is going to have increasing internal problems. And that is going to affect governing. And governments that are way behind in the polls, you know, the old saying about the animals when the water dries up, they start to act. Yeah. I I, I, I just don't. So you're suggesting some of what you're suggesting some of what appears to be clumsiness from the Trudeau government 
is about the polls. I think I would actually. I think the main answer is exhaustion. Uh, if you would ask me the one thing that I think has gone badly for the Trudeau government the last year and a half, I would say high level executive fatigue. Um, but I would go further to say that every politician who's down in the polls will tell you that, though, we don't look at the polls. We got a lot of time. The only poll that matters is election day. But then they go out and they exempt one small slice of the country's carbon tax, but not the rest. And I know, Matt, I I am not saying that the only poll that matters is uh, on election day. I'm simply saying that I've seen Trudeau it, with double-digit deficits overcome those deficits. I mean, Andrew Scheer looked like he could become prime minister. And certainly, Aaron O'Toole looked like he could become prime minister. And and I'll give you another one that nobody ever talks about. Thomas Mulcair, for a while, looked like he could become prime minister. So I, so I just don't want to talk be, about him I constantly. Just be, all right. <laughs> I just don't want to be drowning in the poll numbers and what I want to focus on, we can talk about polls, that's fine. But what I, what I want to focus on is character because it's a much more interesting and compelling conversation. And I don't believe that just because somebody is a good attack dog, it makes them a good CEO. I mean, uh, they're, they're probably great, great examples on both sides, but that's what I want to probe your character on. Do you perceive that the attack dog is likely to be a better prime minister because he's a good attack dog? That's an interesting question. Short answer is no. I think the, I think an advantage Mr. Polyev has had lately, and whether or not it's a testament to him or a testament to timing, and it could go either way, I think he's strong on brand. And here I'm talking brand again, but I think on issues like housing and economics and things like that, I think the news cycle is working to his favor. So I think there may be an opportunity for him to come in with policy proposals that are effective or popular, maybe both in an ideal world, that better suit some of the challenges of today. Uh, as opposed to a government that's been around for eight years. But no, I mean, I, I wrote in 2021 um, a, a column that I can pop you an email link to it later. Um, but what I wrote was that I really hoped Aaron O'Toole won the 2021 election. And it wasn't out of any particular affection for Aaron O'Toole, although I, I like Aaron O'Toole, he's a nice guy. But to me, it was going to be a defining election for conservatism in this country. Do you end up with a fairly mainstream guy who would be policy focused or do you end up with the very angry uh, faction of the party? And well, now we know that column would have been over two years ago now. I still think there are smart conservatives, but um, I I, look, I, I was writing about this actually just a week or two ago. Something went wrong with Canadian conservatism back in, I think, around 2013, 2014. You yep. think? And I think they ran out of ideas. <laughs> and I think there had to be a Absolutely. process of renewal, of intellectual yeah. and policy renewal that never happened. And instead, the party has been animated by memes and, and shit posts. or sorry, I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Look, uh, Matt, if I had told you in 2012, 2013, that someone like Maxime Bernier would become, I'm not talking about the Maxime Bernier who was the, Minister in the Harper government, but the the, the whatever the, the most modern version of Maxime Bernier. So if I had told you that that kind of stuff uh, would become something that conservatives, that mainstream conservatives uh, would be intimidated by to the point where they would want to adopt some of that stuff. If I had told you that in 2012, 2013, you would have told me that I ought to alter the medication. I think I would have asked for some of the medication. Um <laughs> 
I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. Um, I you should never. Well, the conservative the conservative coalition today. If you, I mean, all parties are a coalition. Okay, the the conservative coalition today is much different than it was in the days of let's just call it red Toryism, which is generally the kind of Toryism that is is far closer to your heart and mine. That's just a fact. I mean, oh God, I'm I'm even more of a hopeless lost soul than the typical red Tory. I'm a national security conservative. Like we are the most doomed and forsaken people in the, in the Canadian political landscape. Um, no, I would. I it's a really interesting challenge to me because I, I I say to some of my liberal f- friends sometimes they say to me, "Do you think Polyev will be a great prime minister?" And I go, "I have no idea what kind of a prime minister he will be. I'm worried, and that's you know my worries are not predictions." Um, the problem we seem to have found ourselves in, and I, I will give you a statement here that shall uh, unite the, the whole spectrum left to right and thinking I'm a jerk, but we've got a government that is exhausted and is desperately in need of defeat and replacement and absolutely no parties I feel comfortable replacing them with. And I don't know what we do in that point because there actually isn't like a default non position to take, right? Like, because if if you don't like either of the alternatives, the safe position in theory would be sticking with what you've got. But I think any fair analysis of what we got shows that this is a government that has been on some kind of terminal decline for a while here. So even the status quo does not guarantee us more of the same. This is a bad political place for us to be in here. But but Matt, if but if the average if the average voter, especially I know people get tired of hearing this, but if the average voter in the suburbs of Vancouver and the suburbs of Toronto feel feel two years from now the way Matt Gurney feels right now, they may opt for the status quo because they may fear the alternative. Fear is a tremendous motivator. Yeah, but so is anger. And one of the things I've noted uh, anecdotally, I think I might have told you this before, it was in the summer where I began to notice like the the normals, the normies weren't normie anymore. The normies were restless in ways that I had not seen before since some of the weirder periods of COVID. And people, people know who I am. People know what I do. And I'm out at social events and stuff. And like, people are coming up to me and they're saying, Hey Matt, Hey Matt, I really am tired of Trudeau. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm at a barbecue. Like, let me eat my potato salad. Like, I don't, I'm not here to do, to do business. It's an anecdote and people can take what they will from it. But these are people who would never have talked to me about politics before. However, the mind only becomes, this is the Canadian mind. Okay. And Canadian elections only gets really concentrated days before the actual vote. And that's why I would just encourage you to think about the clock. Two years from now is is literally hundreds of news cycles. We have no idea. I mean, Do you take for granted they go the full two years? Take for granted? I'm sorry. Do you take, take for granted, granted they go the full two years? Yeah, yeah, I take I, I, I do take it for granted. Sorry that they go the reason. full two years. Jagmeet Singh does not want to be out of work. And Jagmeet Singh is out of work basically the day after the next election, no matter what, whether it's two years from now or certainly if it's if it's between now and two years from now, there's no doubt in my mind that the polls right now would give Pierre Polyev a majority. I mean, I don't know how you, I mean, unless the NDP gets back to the position it was in, in the days when Trudeau became the liberal leader, when when Michael Ignatieff and I guess Stefan Dion before him 
took the liberals to number three. That was a very, very odd place from a historical perspective. The only way that that can happen again is if in an election, Jagmeet Singh all of a sudden catches fire with the way that car did in Buffalo in Quebec. That ain't go, that, that's, just, that's not going to happen. Even if Jack Layton were the leader right now of the NDP, that might not happen. That was a, a one-off, and I don't want to get into the, the, the perfect storm that Jack Layton's NDP had, but the, the, the truth is that even weeks and months after that huge, uh, you know, orange victory in, in, in Quebec and the, the, you know, dozens of seats, even weeks and months after, they couldn't sell any NDP memberships. So there was no evidence that despite that, that interesting evening in which Jack Layton did better than the Bloc Québécois, there was no evidence weeks and months later, and certainly there is no evidence now, that there's any support in Quebec for the NDP. That's what would have to happen for Jagmeet Singh to keep his job. So he's not keeping it. He's, he's got influence for as long as this thing lasts. But two years from now... I told you a minute ago that I constantly think about Thomas Mulcair and you laughed because I think you thought I was being sarcastic. I was being a little sarcastic, but not fully sarcastic. Okay, just a little bit. Well, tell me more. Thomas Mulcair would have been the opportunity for the NDP to consolidate strength in Quebec. Um, And it it didn't happen. So I, I don't disagree with you. And I asked you before, do you take for granted that we go the full two years here? I don't take it for granted, but I expect it which is a different thing. Like on a balance of probabilities, I would imagine we probably go the, the almost two full years from now. But like I said before, when parties stay down in the polls for a long time, weird things happen. And we live in an era where you were asking me a few minutes ago, if we went back to 2013 and you told me some of this stuff, brother, we don't have to go back to 2013. If you went back to late 2019 and explained to me what my next six months were going to look like, I wouldn't have believed it. We live in very unsettled times, and I think that has to be discounted in at least as a wild card against any of our political expectations. I didn't think in 2013 that the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada would be flirting with anything resembling the convoy with anything resembling the anti-vax crowd, with anything resembling what Preston Manning has just pulled off in Alberta and uh, taken his own piece of fiction and then cut and pasted it into a a government report and then tried to encourage the current crop of federal conservatives to actually adopt this thing. And this thing involves believing in and supporting people who don't have a case to make on public health but to believe them anyway, because, hey, politically, what a great way of getting people to be loyal to you. No, I didn't think that that would happen to the Conservative Party in 2013. All the things I'm talking about are things that marginal parties do, parties that just want to cause and just want to raise money and just want to raise profile, but not parties that take themselves seriously as government. One of the things I've written about and I've worried about is that we've caught I've, I've written about this in mclean's i've written about in the post that we're looking at an era where our politics i've used a couple different terms for it have become either memeified or gamified and you're saying a minute ago that you don't think it's a party that thinks about governing okay i'll grant that but i think it's a party that thinks about oh, no, no, no. i consider the party the conservative party thinks about governing what i'm saying is many of the things that they're doing right now are the things that you would think would be done by a Maxime Bernier party, a fringe party, 
not a party that thinks about governing. The conservative government, the conservative party very much thinks of governing. I'm simply saying that the coalition they're putting together right now and the policies they're putting together and the people they're aiming at right now are not the people and not the kinds of things that they would have aimed at 10 years ago. I want to ask you a question. I want to reverse the podcast here. Why do you think they're performing so well in uh, right across the demographic categories? Like if it was all like 50-year-old white dudes in Saskatchewan, that would be easy. But when we're looking at like women under 30 now leaning conservative, what do you think happened? I think uh, I want to agree with Matt Gurney. I think there's a, a certain amount of exhaustion with Trudeau. But well beyond that, there's a certain amount of exhaustion with what I would call good old-fashioned Canadian self-confidence and even Canadian optimism. Self-confidence has been corroded, A, by the pandemic, B, by the interesting economy we have, where some people who are older have done very well because they've done very well in the real estate market. And pardon me for saying this, but Matt Gurney is one of those people. But there are a number of people, whether they're younger women or younger men, it doesn't matter to me. The younger demographics, which liberal the liberals absolutely need, Uh, to sustain themselves and have always needed, they've abandoned them because they feel the country has abandoned them. And Pierre Polyev is is telling them every day that it's Trudeau's fault. And many of them are saying, well, it may not be Trudeau's fault, but Trudeau's not helping. So maybe we'll try something else. I think I I broadly agree with that. But I think one of the other things, and I, I had flagged this before in a column I wrote probably about a year ago, Trudeau was very much like Trudeau's playbook hasn't changed much since 2015. He's gotten older. He's gotten grayer as have we all Um, he's accumulated political baggage as any government does, but fundamentally his worldview, at least as he expresses it has remained fairly consistent. The world meanwhile, has just punched us in the face repeatedly for years. And you've got a guy like Paul who doesn't show up. He doesn't offer answers, but he has been one of the only politicians I think has been validating the feeling. And I, you know, I'm emotionally dead inside. I'm a Toronto wasp. Like, I don't know what these things you humans call emotions are, but like <laughs> when I see, when I, when I see, pull, pull yourself together. We have a podcast. I'm sorry. I, Matthew, so, sometimes, you know, so, sometimes you really get me intellectually curious and sometimes you're a stand-up comic. So uh, it's, there you go. Look, in the given the state of the industry, we all need a plan B. Um, right. <laughs> no, what I would honestly just say is that, like, I'm a Vulcan. Like, when when politicians talk, I'm just I assume they're lying to me, and I want to see what like the actual document says. But there's an interesting cutoff because you mentioned that I'm old enough to be like, kind of won the real estate lottery bit. You're absolutely right, but barely. One of the things that's interesting is if I had tried to buy my house two years later, two years, never would have been able to afford it. I have younger cousins, younger friends, younger colleagues. They're only five, 10 years younger than me. We listen to the same music growing up. They are never buying a house. It's just impossible for them. And they just missed. We were in high school at the same time. I was like in my final year, they were in their first year. That was all it took to completely miss out on the Canadian dream. Only one politician has really been talking about it. Mr. Singh has been trying, talking about grocery prices and things like that. But I think Mr. Polyev had that field, and he had it first, and he had it most. Matt, this is not a Charles. very sophisticated way of, of, of making a central Canadian point. The world that we live in, the Canadian world, the Canadian middle-class world, if you will, is divided into two categories, those who are house secure and those who are house insecure. 
and those who are house insecure create a volatile political environment. I would add, well, yeah, because house security allows so many other kinds of security. Like it, it underwrites almost everything. I know what school my kids are going to next year. Cause I know my landlord's not going to rent evict me and I have to move them to a different school jurisdiction. I know that if my roof gets a leak that, you know, even if I'm short on cash that month, I can just ding the house line of credit and repair it. If my car needs repairs, I have all kinds of security and I can even splurge a little bit. And I think for people who are not in that situation, when you've got the same sunny ways script that you've been hearing for eight years coming out and your life has materially gotten worse in those eight years, I think that can be a pretty alienating experience. Matt Gurney in Toronto, thank you for making me think and making me laugh at the same time. Well, it's my specialty. Matt Gurney is on mornings on Sirius XM. He's also co-founder of a tremendous Substack called The Line, which is also a podcast, which he does with Jen Gerson, a brilliant writer in Calgary. And so they've got the whole East-West thing happening. Thank you for allowing this to happen. Whether it's Spotify or Apple, it doesn't matter to me where you get your podcasts. And we really appreciate the fact that you're passing it on uh, to your neighbors and everybody else that you talk to. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.